Hello and welcome back to the Miscast, where we examine the latest news, spicy brews, and strategy in CEDH. I am your host, Drake Sasser, and with me today is the proud owner of a brand new haircut, Mikey Hollihan. How you doing, bud? Doing swell. How are you doing, Drake? Doing awesome. Jealous of jealous of the haircut, though. Like, in all seriousness, my hair is just getting unruly. Like, my hair is, like, half dyed, half, like, this brassy blonde. Like, I'm in desperate need of uh, a haircut and a dye and all the, all the works. But I just don't leave my house anymore. I work remote. Like, I, I just don't really even see people 90% of the time. So it's like, what's the rush, you know? I mean, that was literally me before Sunday. So I feel yeah. that. My hair was much longer than yours. It was a fucking mop. But well, you go out. You're, you're visiting people all the time. I feel like you're always just on the move, visiting some whatever CDH yeah. personality, networking, and being the social butterfly you are. You know, I keep myself busy. I'm going to be in Chicago this weekend to work another uh, comic book convention. Probably going to be George Decay's Handler again, so that's pretty dope. And then the next following week, I'm going to be in Columbus, hanging out with Cal from Playing with Power. Ooh, that sounds busted. I have a lot of love for Columbus. Uh, I think I, I brought, you always point out that uh, Mikey's Late Night Slice t-shirt. Sponsor us. Sponsor us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, that place is awesome. It's like right next to the convention center. So we go there like all the time. And like to the point where I like posted on Twitter last time I was there, I was like, at Late Night Slice, anybody want anything? And people were like commenting like their order and stuff like that. It's super wholesome and literally less than a mile from North Market, which is also right next to the convention center. Just Columbus is a goaded location for Magic tournaments. I love it so much. Yeah, so we'll see. I've never been to Columbus before, so we'll we'll see what I think, but I'm sure it'll be a good time. Probably going to see Mike as well. Mike is really excited to beat me up in Halo 2, and uh, I relish <laughs> the challenge because I'm really bad at that game. But, you know, co-op is great, so it's either he's going to be beating me up in multiplayer or I'll be holding him back in co-op. So Yeah, way, one of the two fun. modes is going to be fun. Either you're getting worked <laughs> yeah. in, in co-op or you're getting worked in multiplayer, but, you know, you're going to have a preference, and we'll see exactly where that ends up. Haven't played Halo 2 in a long time. It's a good game. Good game. All right. Well... How was your weekend? I I don't know that I did anything super fun over the weekend. I did like a commentary gig, but I didn't do a lot of CDHing over the weekend. Um, kind of had a pretty stacked week last week. I was on the the Playing with Power stream and uh, all that stuff. So I, I had a pretty busy weekend. Did you do anything fun over the weekend? Um, weekend I was it wasn't too busy. Like I went to New York to get my hair cut because I'm a bougie bitch that has a stylist in New York, and this is how I roll. But um, on Thursday night I went to LCD Sound System and saw their show that was in Philly, and that was really awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, their show is so good. It's like kind of weird. Like the first time I saw them, I've seen them twice. First time I saw them, I was like, okay, like I did not really know the band that well. I was just like going with some friends, and like I was like, okay, whatever. And like I was watching, and I was like. This is like oddly soothing, but like at the same time, I kind of recognize there's just a lot going on. This is like a little weird. There's like a million people on stage and like they're mm. all doing something different, but it's like kind of cohesive into like full music. And like there's like it's kind of soothing the the rhythm and the structure of it all. I, I found it really enjoyable. And so the next time I saw them was like just a music festival and I made sure to hit their hit their set because I really liked the show. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I really like their show, and you're right, like, there's, like, ten people on stage, there's, like, a million instruments, they have their synthesizers, they have everything, so it's, like, you see these people, like, bouncing back and forth between songs and everything, I'm like, wow, that's a, that's a lot, but they performed really well, and it's one of the better shows I've definitely seen, so, very pleased, um, definitely worth the, worth the ticket and everything. Nice, yeah, I love that for you, it's, it's, it's a good show, it's always good to see good shows, so, 
you know, I'm glad you got some interesting stuff done rather than just boring old me just working. I, I guess casting is really fun. I do enjoy it a lot, but it doesn't take up that much of my weekend. And the rest of my weekend was mostly just work. So it's certainly overshadowed by just kind of getting my life back together after a few weekends on the road and what have you. Um, mm. Yeah. So excited to dive back into CDH and be able to jam some games and all that kinds of stuff. You working on anything, speaking of? You working on any CDH decks? I know you were toying around with Shorakai at one point. I think recently you and I have both been kind of tackling the five-color uh, partners, Eleven and Mike. Yeah, so Hal and I put together a five-color pod list that needs to be tested, so Hal's probably going to work on that a little bit. And I've started to turn my attention back to Anala because at Seattle, Jamaican dude had the audacity telling me that Anala's dead, so... I am going to put that back together and start jamming that deck again, because I still feel like it's very strong. Obviously, Dothy is, like, a bit of a hit for the list, but it's just I, so Yeah, fast there's no way, like, one card like that. It's like, no, it's not, like, Dockside level. It's not Breach level. Just, like, one, you know, additional kind of, like, Staxy creature is, like, enough to shut down Anala as an archetype. I think that's a quite a tall claim, even if the card's a little problematic. Just put some extra removal spells in your deck. Put, like, a fire card in your deck. I agree. Part <laughs> of it was, yeah, I already added March of Sorely Missing, um the list and i was already on deluge but part of it was him memeing because i hadn't played the deck in months and then the first pot i get into and i played again there's i'm going last so already not great and then there's two winotas in the pot oh jeez so going, <laughs> going last in two winotas i kind of i'm good like, i don't even need to look at my hand i'm not winning this game and it i got bodied but you know like that's not every pot and the deck is still strong so i just need to put it back together and take a brief break from armix crom because that's all i've been playing for the past few months so Looking back at that, making some changes and updates here and there, because the Kamigawa cards definitely have a place. Like, I think uh, Otawara might make the cut, and as I mentioned, March of the Swirly Mist definitely makes the cut. So, we'll see what happens. Definitely going to start tinkering around with that again. Yeah, no kidding. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. Are you going to play that vehicle clone? Did you play Phantasmal Image before? I actually don't know, like, how the discussion is, you know, handled with, like, Imposter Mech versus Phantasmal Image. Uh, like, is one replacing the other consistently? Is there a reason to ever play both? Like, I don't really know. I've not been privy to really any discussions about that. I feel like that card was is fairly impressive, fairly powerful, and I just don't see anybody re- making any kind of swaps or replacements or even talking about it. Yeah, so in my analysis, I wasn't on any of the clone effects before, and I don't think I would add Imposter Mech, but sure. it's definitely just one of those things that comes down to preference. I don't think there's much discussion just because everyone knows, like, the cards are functionally more or less the same. It's just Imposter Mech. Since it stays as a vehicle, it gets to dodge a lot of creature removal. So, like, if you copy someone's, like, Notion Thief or something, yours kind of sticks longer because, like, Swords, Path, Insert, whatever here doesn't hit it. Um, but Image has the benefit of being able to copy your own stuff. So if you want to, like, double your own dock size or things along those lines, then it's a little bit better. So it really just depends on preference. It's kind of like, you know, the numerous bounce spells we have. Like, do you want Windsor Rebuke versus, like, Alchemist Refuge or uh, Come to a River? And it all just depends on, like, what your deck's trying to do and just, like, player choice like for instance with the bounce spells i prefer windsor because i love breach decks and millet like if i have a top deck to putting in the yard and now i have that for my breach turn things like along those lines so it's really just like a preference thing i don't really think there's a clear cut which one is better than the other it's just kind of what are you trying to do and what do you value more well imposter mix kind of neat too because it comes in as like a vehicle right it's like not a creature so like say you copy like a dothy void walker doesn't that like tap to sacrifice i think it does so like you yeah, could play it and immediately cash it out right as a dothy yeah exactly yeah, yeah so like I said, there are, there are pros and cons to each one, so it dodges yeah. a lot of removal. You can use things right away. But like I said, not being able to copy your own stuff it can be detrimental because, you know, if you're on red and blue, finish being able to copy your own dock side is super relevant. So it, it just depends. Like, the pros and cons, like, really balance out, in my opinion. And it's kind of like, which one do you like better? 
So sure, I, I don't sure. think there's like a clear answer. I think that's why there's not much discourse about because it it's not like a clear line like oh this card is just better it replaces it everywhere. It's just what do you value more the evasiveness yeah. and being able to use the creature right away or the potential that you can copy your own stuff. That's fair. It's no discourse. Nobody cares. That's just what it is. It's what it is. <laughs> Well, either way, I, yeah, I'm working on a five card mid-range. I, I just got all my cards in. I had to order a drum bellower. That was a card that you pointed out to me that I completely missed in our Kamigawa wrap up. I, I had no idea. I think it's from Kamigawa. I really don't even yeah. know when that card was printed. I think legitimately when you suggested it to me was the first time I'd ever seen the card. And I was like, wait, this card's just good. Like, <laughs> this card is just good in like mana creature decks that have like, abilities and stuff i think this card should maybe even see more play than it does but either way i think it's really good in like the the mike 11 kind of shells because you can play some mana creatures and untap your mana creatures and mike every upkeep and then you know constantly have a shield up for for your clowns kind of works as like a giver runes effect out of your command zone which maybe those should be in my deck too i, I don't really know probably not if mike's filling that role but you get the idea like they're really interesting as like a way to you know constantly have something to do with like your creatures or any kind of tap abilities and what have you so yeah that card finally came in so that completes my five color mid-range deck that i can start playing around with and i'm excited to get some games in with it it seems really cool yeah i'm looking forward to it and then we'll see how uh the version how and i put together how that's gonna work because i yeah. do not know i like this head-to-head this is sick we can't play in the same pods though because then there's like you know there's more at stake yeah yeah we're skewing the game a little bit we can't do that that's no good yeah it's like oh now mike and 11 has a 50 percent chance of winning this game that's really good for our data (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, speaking of which that kind of you know it's a little bit of foreshadowing what we're gonna be talking about today but i don't want to dive in too deep too quick because i do think this topic uh takes uh i guess a fair bit of nuance like there's a lot going on with what we're gonna be talking about today and uh, I kind of went down a rabbit hole more or less. I was just spamming you with stuff today and ideas and all this kind of stuff. I'm very, very excited to talk about this issue. It's, I've been kind of brewing on it uh, for a few weeks, at least since the Marchesa event. And kind of, I don't want to say I had like a eureka moment, but things started kind of clicking for me. And I think I'm on to something. So we're going to get your opinions on that and all all the whole works. We're going to go in deep depth detail, all of it. We're We're going in. But... Let's start at a high level. What are we talking about? Well, there was discourse recently, primarily on Twitter. I think that's where a lot of the CDH stuff that, you know, you and I both see, specifically me, because I'm more on Twitter than I am on Reddit or anything like that. But on Twitter, there was a whole bunch of buzz. Little spoilers here. If you don't want these spoilers, I'm sorry. But Magda won Marchesa. A Magda deck, monocolor, mono red, a deck that I, I think I've been somewhat vocal for thinking is a little overplayed compared to its power level, uh, even compared to the other mono red decks. I think Goto and Berkey generically are much better decks than Magda, uh, all this kind of stuff. Magda won Marchesa. All right. There was a whole bunch of buzz about that, you know, various plays, some weird stuff that happened, like in the finals, as far as people making plays that seemed suboptimal, all that kind of stuff. Whatever. That's, it's kind of weird, especially for what was, I think, one of the biggest tournaments to date. But, all right, you know, things happen. CDH is an incredibly high variance format. Your win rate, like I said, is demonstrably lower. And there's variance not just in your own deck, but in the composition of your pod, too. And that uh, contributes a lot to match results. So there should be quite a churn and quite a variance in decks that are winning week in and week out. I get it. That's a baseline. We all understand that. Well, after that happened, Brian Koval made a tweet that I retweeted that I think was really good. 
And he said, I was 0% surprised when an event with stakes was farmed by monocolor decks with combos in the command zone. Even while playing to win, being flashy about it is a casual mentality. Missionary position game winners emerge at the tournament level. Big lesson from Marchesa. I think that's really succinct and really hammers home a great point. This is in replies. I'm sure you can find the tweet if you want. That was word for word, though. And yeah, no, I think he makes a great point there is, you know, trying to do the 10 step combos and layer it all together. And, you know, you, you seem like that one meme where the guy just has like this huge conspiracy theory drawn up in the wild hair and wild eyes and all yeah, this stuff. From, it's always sunny. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know the shows that well. I've just seen the memes and uh, I'm, a, I'm a boomer. I'm very old, Mikey. Uh, anyways, yeah, so, like, that's what you look like talking about all this kind of stuff. It's like, you don't, you don't need all that. Just, like, have a good plan. We talked about this last week when we were talking about blue-white. Have a solid plan going in that you can adapt a little bit based on what your pod composition is to where you're not just cold to anything. But have, like, one solid plan and go in and execute. And that works a lot in 1v1 competitive formats. A lot of times it's very important. The word cohesion gets thrown around a lot making sure your deck has a cohesive game plan. Um, and I, I often actually even use that term when talking about people's decks that are trying to do too many things. I was having a, a deck discussion recently uh, where I brought up this exact point. Like there was a deck that I was looking at for modern that had a combo element, some stacks elements, and then some like just generic one for one control elements and like basically no selection in it. And I was like, yeah, you can tell this is built by a CDH player because there's like <laughs> no cohesion in these three plans and there's no cantrips or anything to smooth the the draws over so you're just going to draw the wrong half of your deck a lot of times when you're playing games and be frustrated that you didn't draw the other half and if you did you would have just won but that's just going to happen a lot and you're going to be like i'm just the unluckiest person ever when the reality is your deck's not very cohesive so it sounds like a buzzword and in some degrees it kind of is but there is like real material game theory behind having a cohesive strategy a cohesive plan and therefore a cohesive deck um so yeah, that's kind of what Brian Koval's getting at there. And I mean, Brian, of course, if you listen to the podcast or whatever and you want to roast me and that's not what you're getting at, feel free to add us. That's fine. But I, I think that's a, a little bit of a deeper dive with uh, more characters than what you can go into on Twitter. Anyways, so that, that all happens. And then the final straw that I was like, all right, we need to talk about this on the podcast is Yeva. Yeva won a, I believe it is CDH Nexus tournament. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, it was something through Nexus. All right, let's get let's get Yeva pulled up because this is this is one that I didn't even know was a deck people were trying. I didn't even know it was a deck that existed at all. It's not on the database, which you know, obviously, the database not the be all end all. But usually, it's the way I find out about new stuff that people are trying and working with. But I'd never heard of this deck. I legitimately could not tell you how it wins the game. Let's let's fire it off. Yeva Nature's yep. Herald, right? Two GG, legendary creature, Elf Shaman. The card itself has flash, can cast anytime you cast an instant. You may cast green creature spells as though they had flash. 4-4. Four, four. Alright, I get it. I get the joke. It's flashy. Literally, huh? And you can flash other stuff in. Great. Like, I can read the text on the card. What are we doing with this? So, I don't know the exact combo lines off the top of my head since I don't play a lot of mono green, but the way that it works is that it basically takes all the other mono green commanders and runs them in the 99. So, it runs like Savala, it runs Yisan. And it's all about linking together like an infinite mana combo, like with a Shia and such, but you're able to do it at instant speed since all your creatures have flash and all these combos are creature based for the most part. And generally, that's how 
it'll win. Like I said, I don't know the exact like kill in the deck, but it's basically if you look at like a Saval list and see how that deck wins or like a Yisan list, just picture that, but thrown into Yeba and now things have flash. And it's a deck that's been run for a while. It has a pretty devout little like cult following. And in general, it's, it's kind of like Magda where like, yes, the deck has a game plan. It can work, but it only works if people just kind of ignore it and you let them do their thing and you just are like, okay, Yeva untapped. Um, not going to kill Yeva, just going to keep letting them get out creatures at instant speed, and like you can win on the top of things, things along those lines. So it's one of those things where it has like a game plan, it's focused, it's kind of people like not pay, don't pay attention to it, and I think that's a lot what happened to Magda over the, the weekend, or like they just don't know how it wins. So like there might be a shy in play, people like, oh, we're safe, like they're not doing anything, this is just a big idiot that turns stuff into forest, and then they untap, and now they have their infinite mana combo, and they, they get you. And this happened with Magda a lot, like for instance in finals, when someone had abrupt decay, and they killed the suppression field when Magda had Clock of Omens as well as multiple dwarves in play. And then Magda's like, cool, now I just get to go off for free. So yeah. it's one of those things where it can win at instant speed, catches people off guard. And if you don't respect the deck or realize like, oh, that's an important piece, you're just dead. Yeah, that's true. I mean, definitely going kind of under the radar matters to some degree. Now, of course, my giant elaborate theory, I'm going to look like the crazy guy, you know, with the with the conspiracy theory once we really dive in. But uh, you know, and that's fine. I'm fine looking like the crazy guy, but I have, I actually have a, a much larger, more encompassing theory as to why all of this is played out. But either way, no matter what, if you ask the average CDH player, the average listener of this cast, whatever, you ask them what the best color combinations in CDH are, I'm willing to bet sub 1% says mono green and that 1%, you know, over half of them are memeing. Uh, and then if you ask whatever, throw it all out the window and you're like, what's the best mono green commander? I'm willing to bet you sub 10% say Yeva. You know, whatever. You're going to have, like, Yisans and the Savalas and whatever. It's going to be between yeah. those two for the most part. Yeah, that's what everybody's going to say. Nobody's going to say Yeva. So, I think no matter which way we bowl this down, this is not a deck that's on people's radar for being the best deck. Not really even on probably the average person's radar. Certainly wasn't on mine for even being a playable deck. So, and then it comes through and just wins this tournament. What's going on? Why? What, what's happening? Is Brian just right that monocolor decks are secretly broken? We're all just wrong. Throw your Timnas in the trash can. Card's not good. Uh, instead, go grab your Yevas and your Magdas. Is that is that what's going on here? Is that what we're parsing through? That's not what I think. I, I definitely think like monocolor decks can be strong because they all are, for the most part, if you're playing a monocolor deck, it's commander-centric. And if you let them do their thing and ignore them, you can re- pretty reliably win turn three. Like, it doesn't matter which monocolor deck it is. I think Urza might be a little bit slower, but in general, mono green, mono red, if you leave that commander alone and let them do their thing, they're going to win turn three pretty consistently just because the deck is very focused. And that's kind of what you get when you only have one color. Like, all the things kind of give a lot of redundancy. A lot of things have similar effects. Like, in Yeva, for instance, for infinite mana, you have a bunch of untappers. I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but I know that you're running, like, Curian Rangers and other things that untap. And kind of running this problem with CDH, which is what I think we're going to get to a little bit. Like, it is a general consensus of this podcast is that one people need to read cards more and just have a better understanding of how combos work and two people really like to push responsibility onto other players in the pod to like deal with something so mm-hmm. it's like you might see like oh magda's on board um or like i see a magda in the pod i don't need a mold to remove a spell or bounce spell someone else will like and then it just kind of keeps pushing the blame to other people or responsibility to other people and then when magda's going off turn three no one has that piece of removal and you're just dead Absolutely. You know, I before we dive right in, I think you really did a great job segueing this entire conversation. But the last piece I want to talk about there with regards to pushing responsibility off in the abstract is a lot of players cu- decide to cut lands in their deck. Looking at you, Mikey. 
<laughs> a lot of players do decide to cut lands from their deck when it comes to building their deck and wanting to incorporate new cards and stuff. They're like, oh, I'll just cut a land and play this new thing or whatever. Because lands are boring. They're not cool. They're not flashy. They're just lands. They just cast your spells. And they're like, okay, well, they're, they're boring. I want less of them. Like, they're not cool. I want to fit more cool stuff in my deck. And I think interaction is the same way in CD8, where it's like, all right, I want to fit more, you know, whatever, powerful cards. I want to fit more combos, more layers, more whatever, fancy terms, make my deck more adaptive. I don't know. You, I could throw buzzword soup out there. It doesn't mean anything. It just means that you're making your deck worse by doing various actions. <laughs> that's, that's what it all translates to, usually. But, um, yeah, so, like, interaction is kind of the same thing. It's like, okay, who wants to put a copy of the miscast uh, in their deck? Versus, like, you know, another cool combo piece or another ritual or another, you know, whatever, another piece of mana rock. Like, nobody does. Nobody really does. No, I don't think people generically do. They're, like, not – the cards, if you ask people what are their favorite cards in their deck, no one's taking out a copy of the miscast and being, like, oh, the miscast, Jesus. A copy of miscast. There's no the in it. No one's taking out a copy of miscast and being, like, I love this card so much, right? It's it's, it's not interesting. It's not bo- – it's, like, not flashy. It's not exciting. It's just there, and quote unquote, to make your deck more responsible, right? Like that's the term you use. I think there's a little bit more going on, but and honestly, responsible might even be a disingenuous word, implying irresponsibility, not showing up in counter spells. I think has its own implications, but like it, it is there to help facilitate a longer game because whatever you're doing is a slower strategy, and you need to live longer. I think is really the crux of it all. Like that's the reason you put a copy of Miscast in your deck. Well, yeah, and this is something that I get a lot of flack for on my list is that I have too much interaction, even though I'm playing like a Grixis show or like even in Anala, people are like, why are you running all these counter spells? And it's like, well, you can get there turn two pretty reliably, no matter what. I can cut the fat because Spellseeker is so lean as it is. You need one card, four mana, done. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I'm going to make room for all those interaction spells because when I get stopped turn two, because I can't expect to win turn two every game, I need to be able to survive until I hit another tutor to find that reanimation spell, find my Yogg's Will, Oracle Consult, whatever it might be. Uh, yeah, people love cutting interaction for more, like, PETAs, more things. Like, the amount of Grixis lists I see that are on Adnaz, PETA, and Bolsa Citadel, I'm like, this is just unnecessary. Pick two. Like, already two might be too much, but you don't need to have three huge payoffs in your list. You just fo- keep your list more focused, and we have Black Tutors and things to find them efficiently as it is. Yeah, just make sure you survive. Make sure you survive, and if you don't need them to survive, you have them there to protect. So you mm-hmm. kind of, that's the, you know, whatever, that's your adaptability. You have these counter spells that can either protect your own combo or stop other combos. And that's important. Like, that's a reason for that card to be there. That's why that goes in your deck over whatever, the next big flashy bomb thing you want to put in your deck. Great. Good deck building principles. We get it. So what's going on? What's going on with these monocolor decks? Why are they winning? What's going on with all this stuff? Why, why don't we see whatever blue farm running over everything? That's a deck I've constantly talked about being, you know, really good throughout the life of the podcast. You know, recently I've been putting my money where my mouth is and playing more games with blue farm just to kind of test my own theories and get myself on my own sanity check that this deck is as good as I feel it is. It is. And I, I generically have felt like it is. I feel like blue farm is still really good. One of the best decks in the format. Why isn't it just winning everything? I think my theory is. We are witnessing in like live real time a really complex four player derivative of the prisoner's dilemma. Now, the prisoner's dilemma is like an actual like mathematical game theory thing. Um, I'll have some video links in the comments that you can watch. I think they are extremely relevant and I recommend, you know, whatever additional listening. I, I gave it to Mikey to listen to before the cast too. It's only 15 minutes. There's two videos. One's like five minutes. One's like nine minutes. Uh, it's 15 minutes of your time. 
you learn a little bit. I think it's a really cool thing if you've never heard of it. And if you are intimately familiar, good for you. I think it's really cool and really interesting. Um, yeah, so the, I don't think we're witnessing a derivative of the prisoner's dilemma. Now, the prisoner's dilemma at a high level is basically an instance in which two rational people that are acting in their own best interest basically make the worst possible decision. You have a matrix of like four different decisions. You have both players cooperate. Well, you know, each player defects and while the other one is cooperating and then both players defect. And there's a distribution of values such that the best thing to do for the group is to cooperate. The worst thing to do for the group is to defect. But the actual dilemma is that if you're acting in your own self-interest, if your partner cooperates and you defect, that's the best possible result for you. However, if they defect and you cooperate, that's like the worst possible result. So you should defect in both instances, no matter what they choose. If you are acting in your own best interest, you should defect. And so it's like, whatever, it gets a lot more intimate. I'm going to let the videos actually explain everything to you. But the TLDR here is that both players, like based on just like the mathematical one shot should defect. Like it's actually just mathematically in the best interest to defect. Um, and that's, that's a one-off shot. That's a one instance, like here's this, you're presented with this decision. What's the best thing to do in the abstract defect? Well, then it gets more complicated. You have uh, something that's called the iterated prisoner's dilemma. And this is how we explain why people do cooperate in a lot of instances, despite, you know, whatever, in the abstract, you should not. And the answer is, over time, you can build meaningful relationships with your partner in such a way that, like, you have personality and influence. So, like, you have different personality profiles. You have, like, the grudger that will start off cooperating, and then as soon as you... Uh, defect the first time they just defect the rest of the time they're like all right you know what you know f you i'm not cooperating with you ever again it's called the grudger then uh you know a whole a whole spread of them but the most successful by far in the model is what's called the tit for tat and that is it just copies whatever your partner did last so it starts off cooperating and then it just mimics whatever the last thing your partner did and that was like the most like optimal across like the next simulation that included a various, a bunch of various different personality profiles. So it's really cool. It's a really interesting effect and shows why, you know, despite sometimes, you know, if you act in your own best self-interest, you might make out it better in the short term, like in these one shots by just defecting and screwing over your partner. But over time, it does behoove you even in that model to cooperate because you will as an aggregate, end up with more value. Like I said, I, I'm going really, really high level here because it does get really in involved and I'm not going to sit here and explain all 15 minutes of the video to you in this podcast. That was like the quick five-minute rundown. But the the really long explanation is that cooperation does matter if there's more than one instance. If like you're doing this multiple times and forming a relationship, then that's what you, you, you end up wanting to cooperate more. So all that, just talking about how does that link to what's going on in CDH right now? Like how, how is this related at all? Well, different personalities in repeated pods, they elicit different responses and tangibly affect how players play CDH. So like, for instance, if you're playing a pod where you like all the people, I'll use myself as an example. If I play a pod where I like all of the players, I am having a great time, I'm more likely to want to 
try to like make deals, make alliances, keep the game going and like, you know, whatever, just like actively participate in, let's say, the political discussions. As you know, I'm a pretty big advocate for no table talk. I don't like table talk very much at all. I just want to sit and cast my cards. But if I'm playing with a group of friends and stuff and people that I, you know, respect, find extremely reasonable, I'd be more open to it than I would otherwise. Like, I'm just like, okay, fine. Like, let's have a conversation about it. Since I know you're civil, I know I'm civil. Let's have a conversation. And that directly is cooperating, right? And sometimes that'll involve lining up your interaction in such a way that the table lives longer. That's good for the group, right? Like, that's value. Well... In pods where I'm playing with randoms, people I don't know at all, or even people I just find obnoxious, I'm much less likely to cooperate. I'm much I'm much more likely to be like, all right, like I don't know what you're doing. It may kill me, but I'm not going to get screwed over by doing things and falling right into your trap. I'm just going to cast my cards, play good technical magic like I know how, and I'll either win or I'll lose. That translates, I think, to a lot of people's attitude in a tournament setting. Tournament settings are a great example of one-shot prisoner dilemmas. You show up and say you're like, I say I show up. I'm Drake Sasser. I'm playing a pod of four people. I am one of them in a tournament setting. All that matters to me is winning the game. That's all that matters. So what am I likely to bring? I've told you, Mikey, that I would probably bring Berkey to a tournament, a monocolor deck that doesn't play a lot of interaction because I don't know if I can rely on my opponents to, you know, cast their interaction spells at the right time. I don't want to have to be the only one playing interaction in a pod full of three monocolored decks. Like, I'm just not willing to, to screw with it. So I just want to show up, play my cards, and I'll either win or lose. That's legitimately the strategy I told you even before this episode that I would take. But recently, as I've said at the beginning of the show, I've been playing a ton of five-color mid-range. I've been playing a ton of blue farm, all in pods with people I know and have had repeated pod experience with. And especially you, Mikey, someone that has openly plays a ton of interaction. Like, you know, I show up with a ton of interaction. We have table discussions more recently. And even the pod we played the other day where there was multiple mystics and all kinds of stuff going on. I was like, oh, he, like, I told you what I have. I was like, I have this soft counter spell, but it doesn't work yet. You cast a thing. I cast a thing. We cooperated. The table lived. This shows, in my opinion, that metas that have developed more based on repeated pods, the same people playing over and over again, are more likely to have interaction. They're more likely to be less greedy. Like, I think that being greedy is the same as defecting. Being greedy by not playing counterspells and just trying to do your own thing is essentially defecting. You're saying, I'm going to show up. I don't care what other people are here to do. I don't care what other people are here to say. I'm just going to try to win the game with my with my deck and just try to win over the top of them or whatever. Like, I'll play my, my deck that can win at instant speed because that is a shared thing between Yeva and Magda. I do want to make sure we point out is that they both can win at instant speed. So you can just wait till the first player is about to win with whatever signaling there's no interaction at the table and you just win on top of it. Like, both of those decks can do that. That's like having this flash instant speed win is a big part of the puzzle, I think. But in the abstract, the reason there's not a bunch of Tendadex there to shut them down is I think due to this prisoner's dilemma effect where people are more likely to show up at a tournament. Even me personally, of my own admission, not even really knowing what I was doing or saying, are more likely to show up and just like not want to have to worry about it. Like a bunch of different pods with random people. You have to convince them that you're somebody you should listen to every single game. It's exhausting. Why do that? Just show up and try to win the game. So players cut blue from their deck, show up with monocolored decks. The more monocolored decks there are, it's really tough for a single, like you, as you said, responsible, which is, I guess, cooperating here, a single responsible deck 
to try to keep all three monocolor decks in check in various pods and stuff, and you're going to lose. So that's, I think, what we're dealing with when it comes to monocolor decks just winning tournaments over and over. What you got? That was my that was my monologue. What do you have? What are your thoughts? Uh, like, I definitely think that's a big part of it. And you can see in tournament play, since people don't really know um, the other players that they're with, they don't know their skill level, they might think that they're better than other people in the pod, whatever. People do just try to jam a lot more and just try to keep hands that are just like, all right, this just gets their turn two, turn three, let, let's see what happens. And you see that with a lot. Like, for instance, at Tier 1 Con, like, Cody won the entire tournament, like, about, uh, I guess it was like a little bit over a year ago or so. And that's very much a deck where it's going to get their turn two. If people don't have interaction or ways to interact with it, it's just going to keep doing its thing. And it was able to just get under, even though there was a lot of stacks in that meta, because they were just able to just keep doing their thing and just keep winning. And you definitely see that a lot. Like, for instance, if I were to go to a tournament, I would honestly be playing Anala over my Hermit's Cromless for sure. Just because, one, it's something that not people, are, people aren't that used to seeing. And people really underestimate how fast it is. And I feel like if you're able to just get there really early, um, people just aren't set up because people aren't really mulling to early interaction. They're mulling to get out their commander. They're rolling to a value engine of some sort. And definitely see that a lot more in tournament play than when you actually have a play group. Like, for instance, um, like the play group that you and I play in, when's the last time someone won turn two, turn three? Like, it, it's very, very rare. Like, yeah, it just doesn't happens. happen. It's, yeah, yeah usually like, a huge catastrophe has happened. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, okay, they, they just had the nuts and they got there. Or it was like someone turned one Nas because those hands do happen. But most of our games, they're going on like an hour and they're going to like turn six, turn seven pretty consistently. And it's because we all know we all know that each other know what's going on. We know how our decks function. We all know to mold an interaction when we see like a Jun deck at the table. Or it's like if I'm on a Null, everyone knows like, okay, he's going to try to get their turn two. Let's get our mental missteps and death right shamans ready. And yeah. you really don't see that much in tournament play because everyone's so focused on just what they're doing. And it's just like, okay, my deck is going to do its thing. And obviously there's exceptions to that because there are mid-range decks and there are stacks decks. But in general, people are just very much focused on like, I'm not too worried about what other people are going to be doing in this game. I just want to progress my own game plan and make that a reality. And that leads to a lot of things falling under the radar. Like, I guarantee you, a lot of people at this tournament had no idea what Magda did. They were oh, in pods with it. How they I won, they no idea. Yeah, I bet they literally sat at the table and they didn't even ask what that commander did. Because I'm sure people read the card and saw like, oh, this tutors things to the battlefield. They might be able to piece together that somehow this can win at instant speed. Like, I'm not sure if everyone will be able to draw those lines, but I really just think a lot of it came down to people just not reading cards and being so focused on what they're doing. They're like, my deck is sick. I'm ready to go. And they just kind of ignore what's going on at the table. They just don't really want to the fun police, for lack of a better word. They're like, okay, I'm going to do my thing. Well, I'll let other people deal with it. There's a stack stack at the table. They'll They'll stop them if I don't go off. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I I think, and that really shows, I think, the exact effect I'm talking about. Like, you know, obviously the prisoner problem has a ton of like different things you can you can pull from it and what have you. But I think this discussion that you just had, even there, where you're talking about, oh, I, I normally play Chrom Armix. I've been playing it for months, like you said. Um, it's like this whatever responsible fair deck that like you played Chromic. Sorry, Chromix. That's actually a good name, though. Uh, you played uh, Armix as the other partner instead of something like Tavesh, which was, like, all the rave at the time. Like, when you started playing Chrom Armix, I remember Tavesh was, like, the black partner. But you were, like, it was, like, re fairly revolutionary. It's, like, like, Armix, what does that card even do? And you started playing it to have extra creature removal. 
because the pods you were playing and the servers that we play in, like you needed to start answering more creatures. Like you were leaning more towards, I need to interact more, not I need to go faster. If you need to go faster, you would just play more Anala, right? Like Anala is like the speed fast deck. And that is exactly what you're saying you would do going into a tournament. And I think that's like very emblematic of at least the subconscious of what's going on with this, with this effect that I'm talking about is, uh, you just legitimately don't want to have to, you know, whatever, get screwed over by even one of the pods during the day who's just like, you know, whatever, screw you. You don't want to have to deal with the table talk of the Mikey's, do you have any things and all that kind of stuff. You would just rather sit and just, nope, I'm an Allah. I go fast, even though I'm in blue, I just need Spellseeker. Like, I think that's really telling. I think that tells a very convincing story and is a big part of where this theory came from. Yeah, and something Hal and I talk a lot about too, like when we're in a random pod, we know we can't trust anyone. We're not going to rely on anyone if we don't know the players. Like, it doesn't it doesn't matter. Maybe you're a big name, but we never played with you. Like, we're just not going to rely on you. We're just going to be like, all right, we're going to play our game plan. Uh, we see Roger Slavis at the table. Maybe we'll hold one piece of interaction for that. But we're just trying to, like, jam. And you see this a lot when he plays, like, um, his Dami Mommy's deck, his Tim Jessica deck. When mm. he plays it in random pods, he's just jamming that Nas and going fast. When he is playing with us, he's mulling to, like, two silence effects and a piece of removal. <laughs> Exactly. And I think that's telling too. Yeah. The, even the hands you keep in pods where you know the other players, like imagine how knowing that you're in the pod would affect how Hal mulligans and how you mulligan, right? Cause like you two know each other's play patterns. You know each other. You don't know the other two. That affects the equation here. Like literally it will, your relationship with Hal affects the in-game decision making. Like nothing else has nothing else to do with like the specific cards, the what have you. It's literally just, I know this person. I've played multiple games with this person in the past. Because of that, my decision-making is altered. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that tells a really telling story. And a big part of the the piece too here, and this, this actually happened relatively recently. I was already kind of beginning to formulate this theory. And what hammered it home for me is I was talking to my good friend, Mitch. You know Mitch. Yeah. I was talking to Mitch. About what's going on in CDH. I was like, yeah, these monocolors, they're just winning everything. They're just winning every tournament. What's going on? I don't know. Like, I, this is my theory. I don't know. And before I could even really dive into this theory that I've put together for this, this show, he was like, okay, well, do you think those are the best decks? I was like, well, like the monocolor decks? He's like, yes. Are they the best decks in the format? And I was like, I mean, they could be the best deck in a given pod and all this stuff. Like, basically dancing around it. Like, no, I, I don't think those are the, the best decks in the format. And he's like, well, so why are they winning? And then he like talked about legacy. He's like, look, take, take legacy for instance, right? Like in, in an abstract context, like the best deck at winning the game in legacy in general is like Goblin Charbelcher. This is a deck that can win on turn one. It's like infamous, like typically like, uh, it was Brian Cook, CDH player and all that stuff called his deck, his test deck, Black Belcher, because it was like a storm deck that could like win on turn one a fair bit. Like, Belcher's just like becomes synonymous with decks that can win turn one. It's iconic. And yet it basically never wins anything in Legacy ever. Like it'll have its like times where it surprises stuff here and there. But like the existence of Force of Will as a card keeps that from existing. Well, why is it that every player plays Force of Will, you know? And this really begins to kind of dive into, okay, how did Delver become the best deck in a 1v1 format? It's always been a meme that Delver can't even beat a standard deck. Because a lot of the times, that may be different now, but, like, Delver of old with, like, their Nimble Mongoose and their Delver of Secrets, like, their threats were terrible. A standard deck would sit there and just play basics to where their wastelands don't work. 
Like, literally, you could play the most underpowered $100 deck and beat this, like, $1,000 best deck in Legacy, which is, like, putting a Siege Rhino on the stack or whatever, you know, from Standard. So it's like, what's going on? How did this happen? How did Delver become the best deck in the format? And it's like, well, obviously, there was format churn. Like, maybe week one, you Goblin Charbelcher comes out the gate and just wins everything. But as time goes on, you're like, okay, how do I tackle that? How do I beat that? And the answer becomes, okay, well, you just, whatever, just put a force on your deck, force their car, char belter, and then beat him down with a ham sandwich, you know? And so the question he was asking me was more in line with what is the Delver of CDH, right? Like what these, these monocolor decks might be some of the most consistent, some of the fastest, some of the best decks at winning quickly, the Goblin Char Belchers. And they're winning events because everybody's showing up with Belcher, right? And so... Does that mean they're the best deck in the format? Like, everybody's clearly playing these monocolored decks. Everybody's playing Belcher, and Belcher's winning stuff. Does that mean they're the best deck in the format? And I was like, well, no, I still think that, like, whatever, these Timnacrom specifically, you know, whatever, some Timna variant is the best deck in the format. You have, you know, the best card advantage. You have some of the best interaction. You have consistent kills. Like, you have all these things that, in my opinion, convert to you being a quote-unquote best deck. And he's like, so it should just go away with a format churn, right? And I was like, well, no, because it, it keeps happening. Like, if people saw Magda win an event, then the clearly the next event, like, if it were just a 1v1 tournament and Magda won an event, the next event, people would show up with their Force of Wills in Force. Uh, people would show up, you know, prepared to, like, answer these faster combos than what they have going on. But that didn't happen. That's not happening. So there's more at work here. And I do think he is right somewhat in the sense that eventually they will start to churn out. And I think that does kind of segue directly into kind of my, all right, what, what does this mean? Like, how does this affect CDH as a format? Because even like by any standards, I guess, really CDH magic in, in a tournament setting is relatively new, right? Like, I don't know when was the first tournament that you were aware of? When did that happen? Um, Hard to say because a lot of them have been online, but in general, they're few and far between. Like, this past year might have had, like, five events total, like, 2021. Um, and now, in person, there's only been, like, three. And one of those had 32 people in it. And then Tier 1 Con and Marchesa were the first ones that had, like, 100 people. So, definitely not a lot of data to work with. Definitely not, like, a huge metric or anything. Like, it, 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 there's definitely not not many tournaments. Right. So, like, tournament magic, especially, well, not tournament, tournament CEDH, tournament EDH, I don't know, I've seen TEDH thrown around, I hate that so much, I refuse yeah, to use I'm, TEDH. I'm, I'm not a fan of that either. I, I'll, I'll even use, I'll use EDH tournament before I, or, like, over CEDH tournament, I'll use EDH tournament before I touch TEDH, that's just, ugh, that's horrible, I hate it. But, tournament EDH is a relatively new concept, and to me... That's really striking because for me, when I got into competitive magic, it had been around for years. Like the Pro Tour was like a well, it was a household name. Like SCG was a household name. Opens were huge. Like when I started playing like real tournaments in like the 2011, 2012 timeframe, like there was plenty of established paradigms. There's plenty of tournaments. Like the way things work, quote unquote, was well established. But even after Marchesa, there's like a bunch of people that are like, do we need to emergency ban Krark? This card is such a problem for EDH. And it's like, oh, uh, okay, wait, we are off the rails. We are just off the rails with this discourse. And there's just still so much that is being figured out. 
And I think that was a big, a big motivator for our episode. We did a few episodes back, the challenge of tournaments. You can go listen to it. If you're more interested in hearing my thoughts and Mikey's thoughts on tournament magic, we are probably uh, some of the more intimately familiar people with uh, tournament EDH and how that goes and maybe some of the challenges that are involved. I think it was a good listen. I was really happy with the episode. Go check it out. But to keep from rehashing anything there, there's still a lot of problems. There's still a lot of problems that need to be figured out. There's still a lot of logistics that need to be figured out. And the people involved with running tournaments aren't the same people that have run the Pro Tour for years. They're not the same people that have organized, you know, the Star City Games circuits or the NRG circuits. These are people that are relatively new to running Magic tournaments. And there is some heuristics to go off of, but, like, essentially, it's still in its infancy. So, I think that because of that, the metagame churns slowly. That's a big point, number one. Two, people don't know each other when they go to play a tournament. Like, when you're playing competitive 1v1 tournaments, like, you'll play people you don't really know or haven't heard of the first, whatever, five, six rounds. After that, the good players are still the good players. And you will play against people you've known or seen before, like, through the rest of day one and usually all through day two. Like, you know these players. They You see them week in and week out. Like, these are people that, you know, you might even make some assumptions about what they're playing. You might even know what they're playing because they have Patreons or whatever. Like, I get paired against Ivan Espinosa in a modern tournament. Okay, the guy's going to be on four-color control. <laughs> like, I, I, I know what's going on here. There's no secrets. There's no switch-ups. Like, he's, he's going to play the deck he's beat everybody with. So, like, that can impact things. And it's somewhat of the same idea but it's in, an inf- in, in its infancy. Everybody doesn't really know everybody else. Unless you're a huge content creator, these people don't know each other. And so I think that is what's contributing to this thought that, okay, I should just go play my monocolored deck and just belcher everybody. Just beat everybody. Why would I play Delver and try to like, you know, whatever, figure out what my opponent's playing and, and dismantle it that way when I can just belcher everybody and just not care and just win you know my, my way my uh my graveyard hate is grape shot as the storm players say in respect to the modern storm versus dredge matchup just like whatever what they're doing doesn't matter if they're dead yeah and you definitely see that a lot in cdh because there isn't like a big like like while cdh is very big online it's not like there's moto where you're doing leagues and stuff and you're constantly going against like the same players or it's like oh like I'm like 6-0 in this league. Now I'm playing someone who I played against on the Pro Tour. It's very much like there's some really big discords out there, like CDH Nexus and the Reddit server, where for the most part, then everyone splinters off into these more like segmented groups. I mean, like you and I did that. Like we were in Founders, and now like we've curated our own playgroup with people that we enjoy playing with. So while we have a very great understanding of like the 50-some people in this one playgroup, when we go to a tournament, it's like I... I was doing registration at Monarch. Like, all these people who came up to me, I was like, I don't know any of you. Like, there's a handful of people, that <laughs> yeah. I, handful of people I recognize, but it's, like, you know, just people that I was friends with. Like, I, I have no idea. And some of the people I'm friends with that I know in the community, like, I don't even play with them much. Like, the playing with Power Guys, big friends with them. We talk a lot. I've only played a handful of games with Mike, Cal, and Zach. So, like, I don't really know a lot of their tendencies and things like that. So, a lot of it's, like, people might know you from your personality, but at the end of the day watching like a video online or something, it's not going to really tell you how they play at the table or like if you can rely on them to have interaction or not. Like everyone that we play with knows like I always have interaction. Like th- that that's the thing. Like Everyone knows that's what I'm always yeah. for for the most part. And then I'm able to get cheeky every now and then because every now and then I do the turn two Nas and everyone's like, whoa. Where's when your that, interaction, where Mikey? <laughs> yeah, so where did that come from? Exactly. Um, 
Yeah, it's definitely much more segmented. Segmented, and if CDH tournaments start to become more of a regular thing, then you might be able to see this more. But it's just so hard when they're just like these one-offs that happen like maybe once or twice a year. Like even Monarch, like they're the ones who run a lot of the events. Like they have Marchesa, and then there's Oktoberfest. So that's two, two, two a year. And maybe your schedules don't line up. You can't make it to both, or it's like, oh, I went to one earlier. I don't feel like doing another one. Or it's like, this one was in Seattle. I don't want to travel all the way across the country. So maybe the next one's on the East Coast. Like it could be a hundred completely different people. Like I'm sure you know, ten or twenty will be um, like the same or so. But for the most part, it's going to be a brand new pool of players. So like, who knows? Exactly, exactly. And I do think that's part of it too. Like imagine a world where you have a magic online queue, like you do for every other format that is like Pro Tour formats or whatever, right? Like Pioneer. If I want to test Pioneer, if I want to go figure out what should I be playing in Pioneer, I go to MTG Goldfish. I pull the latest like decks or whatever and see what see what's good, see what I might enjoy. I can fire up a Magic Online league, just like renting the deck from Mana Traders or whatever, and just go start playing against other people that are playing the format and testing as well. And of course, there's other things that subsidize this, like uh, streamers, uh, articles. Even though those are becoming kind of rare these days, but like streams, articles, videos, all that kind of stuff on decks, and even just reaching out to people that I know personally are you know testing the formats and all that kind of stuff, and kind of help figure things out there. The point is, there's infinite more resources than what you have in CDH. If you want to prepare for CDH, how do you do it? Like. I feel like the average answer here is I will just go test with my play group. Like it's so sectioned off. And because there's no generic pool where people can go to see what's good in the quote unquote meta, right? Like the meta is like almost a meme when it comes to CDH. When people say, oh, this card choice is a meta choice. Like you almost just like, you're, uh, it like triggers a response in me that is certainly negative (laughs) where I'm just like, Okay, so basically you're saying this is unplayable and you're trying to justify it by using the magical meta words. Like, all right, like that's legitimately how I feel a lot of the time. Because, like, in theory, CEDH is CEDH. It should all be one meta. Like, you see Pioneer, Modern, all that kind of stuff. Like, you do have local metas at, like, your FNM where there's ten people and, you know, seven of them bring the same deck every week. All right, fine. Like, those are cases where you can make some pretty aggressive meta choices in this very calculated very constant controlled environment. But when it comes to CDH pods, like, you know, I, I guess I know you're going to show up with Chrome Armix. I can put a card in my deck that's for the meta or whatever, but I'm not going to sit there and think that card's good. I'm just targeting you. So I probably won't even do it because I think that's aggressive. Like I'm not going to show up with, I, I don't, I don't even know of an example of something that just stops Chrome in its tracks or something. I, I don't know. Some kind of destroy all artifacts, unless I think that destroy all artifacts effect is good. I'm not going to put Shatterstorm on my deck to blow up Krom and all your artifacts unless I think that card is individually good. So when people make decisions in CDH based on the meta, like they're referring to basically just their own pod and trying to sell you that the way their deck's configured for one single pod configuration is the way the deck should be configured. And that in and of itself is ridiculous. Yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you just just never know what you're going to see. And I definitely think there's like, some strategies that are just objectively better than others, but at the end of the day, you never know because it's like our play group, like we we have like what we view as like very highly tuned lists, but if we go into a pod that has like two stacks in it, uh, two stack stacks, then it's like, oh, well, thanks. let's see uh, if we can Uh-oh. find those Cypress in where's... Yeah, let's see if we can find those Cypress in time. <laughs> yeah, where's my removal spells? I cut those because I needed stack-based interaction for Mikey. Like, I, that's legitimately how it works and what it is. And when I was talking to Mitch too, he was like, okay, 
you think whatever blue farm is the best deck and you show up to a pod that has three other monocolored decks are you favored to win and i was like i don't think so at all i think i'm just dead like i could maybe stop the first guy maybe stop the second guy whatever when it comes to the third individual like i'm probably just gonna die like there's no way all three decks these three non-interactive decks that i show up with this i'm not favored at all and he's like, okay, yeah. flip the script. If you show up with whatever. And I was like, oh, actually, I have a great example of this. I showed up with Bergy on the Playing With Power stream uh, on Wednesday, and I got farmed. Didn't win a game. I had like a 50-50 to win one of the games, but I did not win a single game. And I was like, wow, I just got trounced. And Mike and Zach both showed up with, as you say, responsible decks. They both had fair blue decks. Like, sometimes he was playing Winota, so it was like a stack stack. Either way, they were decks looking to extend the game's length. And there was only two of them. There wasn't even three. And I seriously, I just got stomped. And I was like, wow. Like, you know, the, the difference is striking. And so the, the effect definitely exists, where the more interactive decks... The more blue counterspell base looking to extend the game and win via card advantage and whatever that looks like decks exist in a pod, the higher your mutual chance of winning is. Whereas I think with monocolor decks, the effect doesn't actually translate the same way because then turn order is basically the only thing that matters, right? Like every player shows up with a deck that wins turn one, the player that goes first every game wins. Now that's still a 25% win rate theoretically. And that's like good, right? Like this should be the average, but when you could potentially shut off those players from playing magic at all, maybe maybe your win rate could actually be higher if you quote unquote cooperated and play a blue decks, right? Yeah, and Playing More Power exemplified this in a couple videos. They did like a four Godo pod, and it was really just like who had the best mulligan and was higher up in turn order. And then they also did one where there was like no blue at the table, so it was just a bunch of like proactive lists. I think there was like a mono black list and I forgot what else was in there, but again, like these videos I think were like fifteen, twenty minutes and they had like ten games in them. Like it was crazy. It was just, all right, like, turn two, it's going to get there, and now there's no one to stop it, so good luck. <laughs> exactly. And whereas I think I played a pod the other day, that it may not have included you. It either had you, I mean, it either had you or, or it didn't, right? That's binary. But there was a pod that was, like, three hours long, and I know there was at least three Timna decks at the table, like, where we were all just, like, looking to grind and draw some cards, and I just remember it being ridiculous. I don't think you were there, because I remember... I cast like a wheel under a smothering tithe, drew a hand that had some interaction and a bunch of lands and just passed. I had 30 mana and just passed the turn. And, I would have remembered that. <laughs> yeah, no, that game went on. It was a really striking game for me. And I think that was the game afterwards that like I cut a land. That was when I messaged you and it said I cut a land because I was like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> like, okay, I get it. Like, I prefer to play more lands than not. That's my entire shtick. But, you know, when when you have a deck that sees as many cards as Timna and Krom does just by virtue of drawing a bunch of extra cards, you are more likely to hit your land drops than a deck that doesn't have those kinds of card advantage engines and is still trying to play whatever, 27, 28 lands. I think I cut down to 28. Like, I, I played 30 in Bergy with the flip lands included, so 30 total. And I like it a lot. Like, I make my land drops, like, I some of my lands have abilities, all that kind of stuff. I think it's really good. But I don't have that same kind of card advantage engines that... Uh, Tim Necrom does, and I think that's a big striking difference there. But either way, the joke here is that that game went on forever, and the first person to attempt to win, I tell you what, did not win the game. The fifth person to attempt to win did not win the game. I don't even think the seventh person to attempt to win won the game. So, you know, you have a, just a complete 
different texture to a game where, in my opinion, and this is this is where I think my claim is going to get a little controversial. This is where I think you actually have opportunities to leverage skill. Like think about think about the context of a four belcher game. Like there is some skill in mulliganing. That's always going to be the case. Mulliganing is very difficult. A lot of people refuse to mulligan when they should. And some people mulligan when they shouldn't because they don't understand the context. But the former happens far more. Like, still, like, after that, there's not a lot. You're just going to cash your card, sequence, and try to win as fast as you can. That's it. That's all That's all that matters in the game. Like, all you're doing, all everyone at that table is doing is trying to win as fast as they can. To me, that does it. Like, yeah, whatever. You might have a 25% win rate because you go first, you know, 25% of the time. But I don't think there's a lot of opportunities there to actually lever- leverage any skill. Whereas a three-hour game that has just absurd, absurd decision trees and branches and implications for each decision, that is where you begin to be able to leverage skill advantage. And so I think that it the skilled players, if you are good at Magic the Gathering, I think you should show up with a, like a quote unquote fair, I call it fair, everything's combo control, but like a responsible, that's the term we've been using for cooperate here. You should show up with a responsible deck. You should show up with a deck that includes counter spells that you can leverage. You should show up with a deck that has a ton of interaction, can grind as the game goes long. You should show up with the Timnacroms of the world because in pods full of those kinds of decks, you're going to have opportunities to leverage your skill and maybe win from fourth position or win from third position, whatever, because now where you started in the pod turn cycle matters less because there's so many turns that go by that that initial advantage from just getting to the board fast matters less and less as each turn cycle passes and you draw more and more cards, you have more and more decisions that you're going to make correctly because you're good at magic. And eventually that is going to directly convert to more win percentage points. So just to kind of begin to take this all home, I think we're uh, really beating the the point home here. I think, I still think that these, whatever, the Timnacroms, the Blue Farms, I always use Blue Farms as the deck I play. Your deck's a great example too. Tim, uh, I'm sorry, Jesus. Crom Armix, I will remember all of these. But like, even like the Timnathrasios is like all that kind of stuff. The, the blue-based fair decks that are looking to play a longer game, I think those decks are still the best decks in the format. I think when you're talking about elite players playing pods, they are going to win more with those decks. Now, if you're whatever, I hate to say if you're bad at magic, because who's going to sit there and be like, I'm bad at magic. I should do this. Maybe some people actually some people would. But still, if you're bad at magic, like you're actually shouldn't at all. Right. You should actually show up with an irresponsible deck and just try to do your one thing over and over again and not actually try to interact, not actually try to like participate in that table conversation instead just stay in your lane focus try to win because if you are given all these decisions across a three-hour time span or whatever you're going to make them incorrectly and this is of course um agnostic to round timers like as i said a three-hour game can't actually really happen in the context of the average tournament because there's only whatever 90 minutes 75 minute rounds there's you don't have that much time and i do think that's a problem that's i think covered in our own uh challenges of tournaments episode but just talking about games coming to natural conclusions, I think the better you are at Magic, the more you should gravitate away from these monocolored decks. Not calling those players bad. Please don't take it this way. Because I think a lot of good players, even you yourself said you would show up with a linear deck. I myself would show up with Bergy. 
And it has nothing to do with me being like, oh, I'm bad. I'm going to show up with this. All players that play monocolor decks are bad. No, I think the theory behind playing our monocolor decks or your linear uh, Anala deck is really good. I think it was actually an actively good decision to play those decks based on what's happening, even if we didn't understand, quote unquote, the math or the dilemma that's going on here. However, what I think we should see is as tournaments go on, as there are more and more tournaments, assuming tournaments become more frequent, assuming these players that are all playing the tournaments get to know each other, say, you know, you remember everybody from Marchesa, not going to happen. Memory doesn't work that way. But like you become friends with everybody from Marchesa and now you know everybody. If I knew that I, whatever, I knew 50 of the 100 players that were going to be at a given tournament and that they were like a bunch of them were playing fair blue decks. I legitimately think I would be much more likely to play fair blue decks because I know these are good players showing up to the tournament with responsible decks. And as a result, I too will be playing a responsible deck because that's going to increase my win percentage directly. Yeah, and, I agree. I mean, that, that's yeah. why I build Armix Krom because part of what we're talking about, these model color decks winning, Armix kills all these commander-centric strategies. And it was like, all right, I can't trust other people in this pod to deal with them, so I'm going to have it in the command zone to remove those Savalas, those Bagdas, those Burgies, insert whatever here. Um, exactly. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what will happen if CDH horns become more... Um, uh, they happen more often. I know Tier 1 cons already been announced for Copenhagen, I think, in like early August. So, who knows? We'll see. But just looking at like the top 16 from these... from the Nexus event, Marchesa, and playing with power they were wildly different. There was, like, barely any similarities. I think a blue farm list made it in both the top 16 for Marchesa and playing with power. But other than that, like, you really don't see much overlap, like, at all. Um, it's just interesting to see. And maybe as these become more, um, more, more occurring more often, then we'll start to see things more converge and, like, an actual, like, we'll have a better understanding of what the quote-unquote meta is instead of all these different playgroups coming together for one event and then never seeing each other again. Exactly. No, I think that's a that's a good point. Um, and I do like that you brought up that Cody won an event because that's not that's not a monocolored deck, but it's still linear, right? It it fits in that same grouping of irresponsible decks, as you call them. And it, turn one Cody, turn two Nas. It'll yeah. do it pretty much every time without fail. Exactly. It's just a consistent Belcher esque strategy. It's a very very proactive, very very linear strategy, and. It's, it's cool to hear that that's what won before. So, like, this has been a trend now, not just across, like, the two most recent tournaments, but kind of across a lot of different tournaments, right? Across time. And I think when we covered the Playing With Power tournament that Gustav won, if you remember that final pod, there was a lot of responsible decks in that final pod, right? And so what won there was a responsible deck. It was actually, I think, legitimately a Timna deck. I don't remember what the other... No, it was a Thrasios Vile Smasher. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, whatever. It was some partner four-color soup. And a big part of that, I think, is due to the fact that that final pod was like people that you and I know, you and I played with, you and I can vouch for their skill level. And I, I even mentioned that. I was like, dang, this is really exciting. You know, it's good to see these players consistently putting up results. Like, these players are all really good. A lot of them are playing blue, counterspell, whatever like a little more reactive decks. Now, don't take this as you should go play the most reactive thing ever. You never assume that you should be playing the most reactive thing ever. Whatever. Win con list stacks is never at any point in time going to be good. You need to have a proactive strategy to where you can steal wins in spots, like you said, where you can turn two Nas after people are like, oh, I'm going to keep my hand thinking Mikey has interaction. And then you just turn two Nas them or whatever. Like you need to have that capacity. 
you need to be able to present quick wins that keep up. But you can't be so all in that you crumble in the face of a pod where every other deck is quite interactive. Now, there can always be some matchups you can't beat. Like, I, I, I don't know. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But some kind of assume there's some kind of deck that's just a silver bullet for another deck. That's going to exist some amount of the time. Like, you can't prepare for absolutely everything, but you can flatten the curve a lot. You can show up with a deck that has more interaction, that can hold its own in more different varieties of pods outside of just trying to go first and win the game by going first. That's the big takeaway, I think. And I think that's something that we should see more of as time goes on, as events go on. And it may take a long time because if you think about the density of tournaments that exist for 1v1 60 card formats, there is so many more. There's so much more content. Like it's just astounding the actual ratio difference between how much content and tournaments exist for CDH and how much content and tournaments and resources, especially, like I said, Moto Leagues, I think is a big part of it, um, exists for 1v1 formats. Yeah, if everyone could play a, a Moto League, it would all be the same meta. People wouldn't be talking about their playgroup of six to eight people. We wouldn't be talking about our specific server versus another specific server versus other servers I haven't even played in. They all have their own metagames because they've kind of developed based on their smaller group and that leads to bad conclusions however i think when it comes to like tournaments at large if we had some of these resources we would see this development happen a lot faster so the takeaway here if you are a timda fan you're like dang i'm, I'm still i'm so sure like me i'm one of these i'm talking to myself here if you are a timda fan hold the course you don't need to abandon your deck to go play a monocolor deck because they're just better that's not true i think I think your deck is still better, but the linear decks are going to win early and the early development of CEDH tournaments, the early development of the uh, capital letters, the meta game, they're going to be the winners out the gate because they're the decks that can get the job done in isolation fast, maybe sloppy, but it'll be fast. And as time goes on and people, people understand what's going on, people understand that if they show up with Force of Wills and all this stuff, they're not showing up not trying. They're not showing up, you know, planning to lose. They're showing up planning to answer the metagame, develop with the metagame, and make the correct decision based on Prisoner's Dilemma game theory. So, and if you're a Monocolon deck fan, you know what? Get well, the getting's good. Because, theoretically, this should not happen forever. This will happen a lot. This will happen early. But as things iterate... As we have more tournaments, as we play more pods, as the community converges, gets bigger, comes together, plays more, uh, plays more games together, we have more content creators, people are making more and more of the same conclusions, we should see a big convergence away from the hyperlinear decks and into the more responsible decks, away from the Goblin Charbelchers and more towards the Delver decks. So, that's my theory. That's what I'm working with. It fits shockingly well for me. I'm not saying it's a concrete truth, but this is the way I see it. This is, I think, what is actually happening and why it's happening. And, you know, I was as confused as everybody else. You know, I feel like it was really, it sent ripples through the community when we're like, are we just dumb? Like, have we just been making the wrong conclusions the entire time about CEDH? Like, I, I legitimately thought that Magda was not a deck I would ever take to a tournament and it won the tournament. So clearly... I'm wrong, right? Like the data here says I'm wrong. Now I don't put a lot of stock into tournament results, 
but they aren't to be completely ignored. I'll say this over and over and over again until the end of time. Tournament data isn't useless, but you have to be able to interpret it correctly. And the very wrong way to interpret it is Magda's the best deck ever. We should just never touch our Timnas again. That's what I got. Anything else you got to say, Mikey? I think you hammered all the right points. Just, um, And I'm curious to see what's going to happen if tournaments start to happen more often, especially now that like COVID things are starting to lighten up. So who knows? Maybe Marchese is going to spark some interest in other groups to start running in-person events, and maybe we'll start to see like an actual meta evolving for CEDH versus just all these isolated playgroups. Yeah, I, I think the problem too is like there is some meaning to keeping up with the release of sets like it's hard for a metagame to develop when there's only five tournaments a year like there's basically brand new cards and brand new strategies especially at the power level they've been printing them at that basically every time there's a commander legends and we get a jeweled lotus or something of that high impact added to the format it's just it's level set like you're completely reset as far as what the metagame means because now you know whatever thrasios timna might have been the best strategy before but, oh, suddenly we get a Black Lotus. Well, I would like to use that mana, please. And suddenly Krom is one of the best partners ever. And that shift is so impactful and so dramatic that it is sweeping. It is across the board. And rightfully so, we have seen a major shift in what's playable. Like some of my favorite decks, Brea, Yidris, you can't even play them anymore because you can't be Jeweled Lotus decks. Like that, it makes that big of an impact because you are that far behind not being able to add Black Lotus to your deck. So when those kinds of changes happen, it does a big reset on the metagame, but the metagame was never even close to solve to begin with. This could be a good thing, legitimately. And I say this without any jest at all. I think formats that end up solved too quickly is really unfun. It's happened to standard basically since arena started. It's happened to modern relatively quickly over the years because of these moto leagues, because of just the density of content, the density of games that can be played by so many different people and the information that's shared. Meta games get solved so quickly in 1v1 formats now. It's kind of it's kind of miserable because then you just end up playing against the same things over and over again. And so maybe I should just never post this episode because nobody wants to sit there and play nonstop three-hour games of all just Tim Necrom decks, right? Like, I don't think that sounds fun to anybody listening to this cash. It doesn't even sound fun to me. But I'm still going to call it like I see it. And frankly, I think most people are just going to ignore me anyway. But it's hard for CEDH to ever really develop when there's not enough tournaments. There's not enough information shared. There's not enough games being played with people that share information. There's not, there's just not enough. Like the density of stuff is not big enough. The community is not big enough. It probably will get there eventually. Especially if, you know, competitive formats get more and more miserable, uh, you know, EDH players, there's a ton of them out there. It's by far the most popular format. They care more and more about, hey, what is CDH? What does that look like? If we find a way to communicate deck lists, especially from tournaments, to players better, this is a whole separate episode, so I'm not going to get too long-winded about this particular topic. But basically, I think the way that people enter CDH right now is so bad, is so bad. And the community would be infinite larger if there was a better entry point to CDH other than like stumbling around trying to figure it out through content creators who are encouraged to play spicy, flashy decks instead of what's best. Like you see in 1v1 formats where all the people care about is winning tournaments. So they're just looking for the content creators that are playing the best decks. You don't have that at all in CDH. People want to play some cool stuff or they want to find the closest uh, 
analogy to their favorite casual EDH deck in CDH. Like, how do I add 10 cards to my deck and make it CDH? Well, uh, that's probably not possible, but people want that. That's what people are looking for. And that is what content creators are pushed to do. And because of that, we are, I, I don't think we're ever really going to have a solved CDH metagame, even during like the flash time. Like there was a bunch of dis- discussion about what was the best build of that? You know, like wh- this is probably the best thing to be doing, but how do we do it the best? Like what is the best paradigms? How do we respond to it the best? What's the best interaction pieces? Like all that kind of stuff. You might be able to speak to that more than me. I don't know what actually. Uh, I, I think that's a really interesting point because everyone, the, the go back to uh, flash deck at the time was Timna Thrasios, um, like Sushi Hulk, it was called. Um, when Oracle was printed, but yeah. me and a lot of other people played during then, we felt like Najila or Kenrith were the best options because getting five colors and then like you have more win cons available, Najila just existing in the command zone to be able to beat people down because these games became very grindy where people were just using their draw engines because it kind of became a Mexican standoff where we know everyone has Flash. So are you going to be the first one to pull that trigger? And it was something that never really got explored because Flash was banned um, not too long after Oracle was out. I think it was probably like a month or two. But Everyone thinks of Flash Hulk, they think of Tim to Thrasios. But in my opinion, Najila was probably the best Flash Hulk list to exist. It's just it didn't have enough time to develop and enough time to gain traction because everyone just kind of stuck with what they viewed as the two best commanders. Like, this is the best shell, and this is what people have been doing Flash beforehand. Yes, like, it wasn't out long enough for us to really make a conclusion on that. And I think that kind of speaks to what you're saying. Like, changes happen, like, we don't even know. Like, what we were doing was the best. Like, could we have done better? Is there something that maybe the, maybe Flash wasn't even the best strategy at the time? Like everyone says the format was solved, but who knows? Maybe we were just behind the times because jamming Nas turn two might have just gotten under the Flash deck some of the time. Like you never know. Yeah, the data is so hard to pull meaningful conclusions from. Like it's hard in 1v1 formats where there's so many less variables, but in four player pods, like, oh my God, forget about it. Like there's so many variables that I don't, I legitimately don't think a CDH meta will ever truly be solved. We may get close. Like we might get like the right commanders with like, I, I don't know, like I'm just spitballing like 80 of the 99 cards correct or whatever. But at the end of the day, there's always, you know, meta shifts. There's always, you know, somebody finds something. Oh, hey, there's this card that was from, you know, I don't even know, invasion block that nobody's ever heard of that actually just blows you out 90% of the time. And so I can just tutor for that every game, win every game. And I, I don't know, you know, that doesn't exist necessarily in CDH because there's just not enough games played. There's not enough content being made with the right intent in mind. Like, you no, know, you know, people are much less likely to watch a three hour pod of a bunch of Tim Necrom decks duking it out and winning with Doss's Oracle than they are. Oh, check out this cool Magda deck that wins with these cool cards you've never heard about. Like magic players are way more interested in that. They're way more interested in watching that. And without the right incentives in place, which, you know, I call them the right incentives, without incentives to win money, like you see in 1v1 tournaments where it's like, okay, you can go win your local FNM, be a champion and host the trophy. You can dream about that. Instead of like those incentives, people just kind of want to play fun games with their friends. And I definitely uh, sympathize, empathize with that. Um, That's what I want to do in CDH2. That's why in general, I, I actually was pretty, I had a lot of reservations. I was trepidatious about uh, dipping my toes into, like, trying to get more competitive than even just normal CEDH, like, trying to actually solve it, trying to figure it out, trying to iterate. Like, I was pretty trepidatious about that because I kind of didn't want to. Like, I really did not want the metagame to end up being completely solved. And I get it. It's a casual mindset. Congrats. I'm a casual. You figured it out. I've outed myself. I'm a tournament grinder that is a casual at heart. You found it. At the end of the day, EDH is meant to be casual. It's meant to be fun. Like, exactly. 
Get a you're there to play with your friends, not you know, not shark them out of wins, not you know, constantly defect and be the defector and make your friends feel like they got cheated and robbed. You're there to you're there to hang out. You're there to to cooperate, play the fun interactive decks, do the cool interactive things, and play the next pod. And I truly think that's where it could be, but the games would become so repetitive for a lot of people that they would be very disinterested. People, brewers would be a little more uninspired than they are now. That's one of the cool things about CDH is we have so many different brewers and stuff. So ultimately, the TLDR is if there were more tournaments, if there was a critical mass of tournaments, I think we would definitely see that shift in metagame towards these higher color decks, less linear decks, a little more interactive, still very proactive, but certainly more interaction as a requisite condition for winning games. But because there is a low density of tournaments, there is a low density of content and information sharing and a low density of consensus on conclusions and stuff like that, we see these very linear decks spiking when it comes to having money on the line over and over again. And that will continue as long as, you know, whatever, those other variables are not met. We're going to continue to see those decks be played. We're going to see those decks continue to have success. But theoretically, naturally, as time goes on, as more tournaments are played, we should see more fair decks. That's it. That's my theory. That's what I got. That's why these decks are winning, I think. And uh, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. Yeah, and I, I would say I agree with a lot of that as well. And also, please, read cards. <laughs> Oh my god, you read your opponent's cards. I do all the time. And it's see a commander you don't recognize or some weird piece that's like, why are they running it? it? There's probably a reason it's in their deck, and it's probably a combo piece. You might not be able to piece it together, but when things stand out, it's usually for reasons because they're important pieces. Like, people aren't just putting trash in their deck for no reason. Imagine so, how much less of a problem that would be if there was, like, deck lists from tournaments and stuff. It's like, okay, Magda won this deck. How many people that weren't at that tournament learned what Magda did because it won that tournament. I'm willing to say very, very few. Like, probably I'm, I'm willing, sub-10% I'm willing, of total yeah. CDH players. I'm willing to agree with that because, like I said, in finals, the, the suppression field that Charles had that was stopping the mana player from going off got abrupticate when they had yeah. a clock of It's on board. Doors. You died to onboard information in the finals. That doesn't feel good. But imagine if... You know, there was a, a a good site. There was a MTG Goldfish. There was a StarCityGames.com, TCGPlayer.com that had CDH tournament results where you could just pull down the list. Oh, you could look at this list, look it over. Huh, how does this deck win? Oh, you figure it out. Oh, you go watch this content creator that gives you the ins and the outs in the deck, what it loses to, what it doesn't. Oh, I can beat this deck now. Even if I'm not playing it, I consume that content. I know how it works. That decision never happens. But because that content information pipeline just does not exist... You have players that are in the finals of an event not even knowing how their opponent's cards and decks work. And you just do not see that really at all in 1v1 tournaments. Even if somebody has a breakout deck for a Pro Tour, like the grinders generally get the joke after the first couple rounds. It's big news. It's like, wow, they broke it. Like, holy cow. Like, you know, whatever. The Eldrazi Winter, uh, the Eldrazi Pro Tour, when people showed up with various different builds of that, like, they pretty quickly figured out what was in those decks and how they work to the point where in top eight, the even if, you know, they didn't have extensive reps, the opponent at least knew how the deck worked. They didn't walk right into onboard lethal, right? That, that, that just doesn't happen at all because that kind of content pipeline exists, because there's so many more voices and names and content, like there's so much more information to be shared, whereas that, that, that doesn't exist in CDH. And 
I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm sad about that. If I'm happy about that, I'm contributing to that directly by producing content. So, you know, if I, if I'm happy about it, I'm probably working against my own odds here, but uh, either way, I, I like having the podcast and talking to you. All right. Anything else you want to say on the takeover of monocolored decks and the Timna dilemma, AKA throw your Timnas in the trash can, go buy all the Magnus and Yavas. I think we, we covered everything and touched on all the points that I wanted to cover on. All right, Mikey. If people wanted to find you, people wanted to shout at you and say, uh, how dare you? How dare you play Krom and Armix and kill all my creatures and not just an Alami? Where where could they yell at you? Uh, they can yell at me on Twitter. It's uh, at Mikey Hollihan, I believe. If not, you can just go to the Miscast page and Drake will, I'll forward it will see it. I'll yeah, forward, forward it along. <laughs> uh, and then once again, Hal, Hal's not been busy, so you know if you want to reach out to me, just go bother Hellenium, and uh, he'll yeah. get you in touch with me. <laughs> his, his people talk to your people. We get it. All right. Well, if you can, fi- if you want to find me, you want to tell me that I just wasted an hour and twenty minutes of your life, and what I just said to you was literally the dumbest thing you've ever heard. You can do that at viral underscore Drake on Twitter. You can, of course, at the Miscast MTG on Twitter. It's also where I post uh, the updates that new episodes are going live. So if you're interested in finding out in some way other than the uh, whatever podcast app you use, I do post every time on Twitter just as soon as the uh, podcast goes live and you can listen to it there. I think even a little bit earlier because the RSS feed takes a a second to distribute through. So you might even get a little early access by following us on Twitter. So you should definitely do that. Not by design at all, but that's just kind of how things seem to work. And, of course, you can find me in various CDH discords. Should be able to at me. I'm just Drake on Discord, and I've been a lot more active in the Playing With Power Discord as of late. So you can definitely at me there, and I will notice, and I will respond, and you can yell at me and tell me I wasted your life. But in the meantime, I appreciate your time. I appreciate you listening. I look forward to talking to you all next week.